had first a, a question to ask from you. It was suggested to me that we should again have our meetings in the church because we are overcrowded and uh, it is too hot. So, what would you prefer? To continue here or to go into the church? Church. Not today. Mm -hmm. Not to have a migration in the church. Yeah. Sure. All right. In this series of talks, one of the questions which stands before us is to understand God through his creation. And last time we spoke of the creative act of God and it appears there that the basis of creation is an act of love. God did not create the world to be the overlord. He created the world to share with it the wonder of being, the wonder of existence, the wonder of life. And moreover, this act of love reveals us love as such in a very clear manner. God was under no obligation to create the world. He was in no need of a world because he was not in need of an object to love. He was plenitude of life in himself. And he creates this world by denying himself because not intending to overmaster it or be the overlord of it, God accepts to posit before himself a world that will be independent of him except that he would have posited it there. Independent in the sense that this world has power within itself to reject him, to be alien to him, or to accept him and to unite itself to him. And in that sense, the act of God is from the first moment a sacrificial action. It's an act by which God is prepared to take all the consequences of what the world he is creating will choose to be or to do in itself and with regard to him. In a way one could say that this way of loving is so different from ours and so radically different from the image which C.S. Lewis gives of the so-called love of the devil to his likes 
and to the surrounding world. In uh, his book, um, he, dis he uh, shares with us an, an imagination, a conversation which the old devil has with his young nephew, whom he tries to uh, educate. And he says, I can't understand what God means when he says that he loves you. When I say that I love you, I mean that I want to take possession of you. I want you to have no existence apart from me. I want to devour you in such a way that you should not even exist outside of me. And yet, God, whom he calls the enemy, says he loves you and he leaves you free. I think this is a very important moment because we are somewhere between the two. On the one hand, we love, and we, when we love dearly, we give as much of ourselves as we can. But so often, we, at the same time, try to take hold of the object of our love. And we become prisoners of the one whom we have tried to imprison. Coming down from the heights to a very low level, I remember my grandmother telling me when I was a little boy of an uh, invented battle that took place between two armies. And after the battle, after one of the armies had won, in the darkness of night, an officer shouts to a soldier who is somewhere not to be seen, Where are you? I'm here, said the soldier. Why aren't you coming? I have made a prisoner. Well, bring him here. I can't. He's holding me too fast. <laughs> and I think very often, when we speak of our loving someone, we are mutually imprisoned. We try to possess the other. At the same time, we become prisoners of him or uh, of the love itself. And so, there is in love an element of self-forgetfulness. And I, uh, I quoted to you last time the words of the Gospel according to St. John, in which it says, um, in the beginning of the word, and the word in the Greek text says, was towards God. He was Godwards. All his alone, all his movement was, as it were, away from himself towards him whom he loves. And that is a very important thing for us, which we can learn from God, and which gives us such an image of the, created, the creating God, a God who wants us to be whatever the consequence to himself, because what he wants is to give us all he is, all he possesses. One can say, in uh, a way perhaps too daring, that is a, an aspect of humility 
in, um, the, in God. Humility not in the sense in which we use the word all the time, making oneself humble, um, um, feeling unworthy. No, in quite different sense. You know what, um, that the word humility in Latin, in uh, Western languages, comes from what humus, which is the fertile ground. And what is the fertile ground? The ground. The ground is lying there, silent, open to the sky, open to everything that will happen. The ground is there, ready to receive the dew and the rain and the hail, ready to be warmed or scorched, ready to be cut by furrows, and always silently abandoning himself to whatever will be given him. This is an extraordinary image, because humility in a human being is exactly this when it reaches um, the degree which we find in saints. It's men, women, who so venerate the other, so much respect the other, so much recognize in the other a right to be him or herself, that she will never make an intrusion. She will give, give and give all that will allow this creature or this person to be himself or herself to perfection and never claim anything else. To this we will come uh, back in another context. Now, today I want to go on with this story of the creation, not verse by verse, but taking a certain number of notions which we have there. The first thing which uh, we see is God creates light. And very often I have heard people say, how absurd. We know that all the light of the world comes from the sun and from the moon and from the stars, eventually from fire. But how can there be light apart from all this? In fact, there is more to it. Uh, we know now from uh, modern science that the energy, the, the energies are almost convertible. And I spoke last time on the fact that God created the world by an appeal, a call, come. Not a shaking cry, but a an appeal of love, come. And this uh, sound of divine, the divine word, is akin also to the revelation of him. He reveals himself, he unveils his existence, his being, to a world he, has, he is creating. And 
we know from the scripture that God is light and he shares himself with the world in the light he creates. You may ask yourselves, as I have asked myself only once, about the way in which it is possible, it works. If any of you has read a book by Lossky called The, the Mystical Theology, of the Eastern Church, you may have found there a chapter on the energies of God. The substance of this idea of the energies is that God is illimited. He, lives in, he is in himself, at the same time he is beyond himself. He cannot be limited by saying, this is God and this is an outside of him. And he, the energies of God are the way in which God communicates himself, not simply the gifts of his, but himself to the world he creates. The uh, ancient writers have given to illustrate this idea a number of images. The simplest, the most direct one is that of the sun. The sun in himself is unknowable to us. But we know him by participation to the light he sheds on us and by the warmth that pervades us. And in that sense, the divine energies are like the light and the warmth of the sun. When God creates us, he does not posit us in front of him as alien objects. He posits us there, filled with his own light, his own warmth. And in this, the created world, from the very beginning, is in communion with God, in a communion that is called to become greater, deeper, more wonderful through the incarnation and at the end of time, to use a phrase of St. Paul, I think, when God shall be all in all. But from the very, very first moment, from the very beginning, the act of creation makes us to participate to something which is Him. He does not put us in front of Him as alien objects. No, we are sharing something of him. In a certain sense, it applies also to all creative work. When a painter, a sculptor, a poet, a writer um, creates something, he does not simply posit outside of himself something which is alien to him and has nothing to do with him. One can recognize in the in a piece of music, the name of the composer, because only him 
could have written this uh, piece of music. It is his soul that finds expression in it. The same is true about poetry, about painting, about sculpture. And so, um, this idea of the energies, divine or human, is very essential to the way in which we relate to one another or relate to the world that surrounds us. We do not create out of naught, but we take part in the or continue the divine act of creation and we put our imprint on it. But the main imprint is God's. And to the extent to which we commune with God and are participants in the life of God, it's God's imprint which we also put as a mark, as a seal um, on the world which we touch. There is a remarkable passage in a book by Charles Williams in which he describes a painting. It's a painting in which there is a beam of wood and I think nothing else really that attracts his attention at least. And he says when he looked at this painting he was struck by the fact that the light was not coming from one place or another, not from the top corner, not from down below. The light pervaded the whole painting. It was everywhere, as fulfilled, as completed, as complete, as it could be. But what struck him is that this light, by flowing, gradually became color. And these colors condensed into materiality and became this beam of wood. And I think this image is so wonderful to think that the light divine shines, is poured into the creation. It comes as light. Then, within the creation, breaks up into color. It materializes into uh, substance and so it's born all the world of materiality which is our world we do not see it that way because we have ceased to see things in depth we see only the surface and the way in which things are useful to us or not useful I can give you an example which is not any higher than the example I gave you about my grandmother and uh, the prisoner. A certain number of years ago, I had the visit of an American uh, psychologist who was touring the world asking a variety of people two questions. What is science and what is a tree? As you may imagine, knowing me, that when it came to speak on science, I had no uh, bounds. I could say a great deal about science. But that was not the interesting point. When it came to the tree, I found it difficult to say its substance what it was. But I had recently been in the United States, and I was, in the course of my traveling, struck by the fact 
that the earth projected heavenwards a richness of vegetation which we do not see often um, in uh, Europe. The trees were great, the grass was high, it was full of life in intensity. And I said, a tree is life incarnate in its elan towards the heaven. I don't mean to say that this was uh, the right answer. But what I want to say is that I became curious and I began to ask people around me uh, the same question. And I remember asking a young theologian, what is a tree? He looked at me and said, a tree? Building material. That's all he knew about trees. And then I asked a, a little girl in her 20s, who was not a genius in any way, just a normal human being. What is a tree? And the answer, a tree? But it is beauty. When the rain falls, can you not hear the music uh, of these drops of rain falling on the leaves? Don't you, when the wind blows, don't you see the beauty of the motions of uh, the twigs and branches and leaves? And a few more examples. Here is the point, that we have come to such blindness that we are capable of looking at the world around us and seeing it only from the point of view of mechanics. Wood is building material, stones can be used for this and that and so forth. But in reality, it is beauty. And in this beauty, we can begin to perceive at least uh, the energies of divine beauty. That is, uh, I think, a very important thing in our um, contemplation of the world. We must become able to look at this world and see it, and see it not from a small point of view, but from God's point of view, or from the point of view which the saints acquire. But what prevents us from seeing this? I think our own self-centeredness. And I'll give you two examples. We go to um, the zoo and we see a lion or a panther or one of those frightening animals moving about. We are captured by the beauty of the animal, not only the beauty of the fur, but every motion, the whole beast is beauty. And then, supposing someone would shout, beware, the door of the cage uh, is now open and the tiger is out. Would we stop saying, oh, how beautiful, how wonderfully he has moved out. What great expression on his face when he looks at me and sees what an appetizing piece <laughs> is there. Why? What's the difference? The difference is only in one thing. That in the first thing we were protected and we could look at the tiger without any fear. In the second case, we are totally self-centered. The tiger doesn't exist except as danger. It can be a tiger, it may be another animal, 
it can be pestilence, it may be whatever it be. It's a danger for me. And that is a very important moment. If we want uh, to see, we must uh, forget ourselves and look without any uh, concern for the effect it has on us. I grant you that if I met a tiger or a wolf, um, I would not simply stop in uh, contemplation. But what I want to say is that apart from tigers and wolves, there are people and there are events. And we do not know how to look at people and events otherwise than by bringing the whole thing to ourselves. How does it affect me? Um, I will quote a second time Charles Williams. There is, in one of his novels, the story of a girl called Lester. Uh, she was on Waterloo Bridge when a plane fell and she was killed among other people. She's a corpse, but her soul is alive. The body is uh, lying there, but the substance of Lester is there. And she looks around and she sees nothing. Because all her life, she has never noticed the existence of anything except herself. The corpses have been removed, crowds pass her by, and to her, the bridge is empty. There is not one being there. She looks around, and she sees houses. Light comes, light goes. It means nothing to her. She has never asked herself, what is going on in any of these houses? Until one day, a man passes her. This man is her husband. She never loved him for himself, but for herself. He was a provider. He was her best surrounding. He related to her, and therefore she related to him. And that opens her eyes, and she begins to see other people, a shadows first, and then a little bit more clearly. And then she moves away from the bridge and goes down to uh, the bank of the river Thames. And she looks at these waters. She is now a soul, as it were, a spirit, a, a disincarnate being. And she looks at these waters as she never looked at them when she had a body. Because when she had a body, she had a revulsion when she looked at the waters of the Thames. Can you imagine drinking of this water, soiled, polluted, heavy with refuse? Can you imagine um, bathing in this water and coming out covered with the dirt it carries? But now she has no body. And she sees, as uh, Charles Williams put, puts it, the waters as they are in themselves, as waters, not as waters relating to her body. And because she can see these waters not relating them to herself, she begins to see that these waters are exactly what they should be. They are the waters that carry to the sea all the refuse of one city after the other, including 
the great city of London. There is nothing wrong in their being what they are. And because she accepts them as they are, completely, without revulsion, without fear, without rejection, she begins through the heaviness and the opacity of the top layers of the waters to see deeper and deeper into the river. And then she sees that under this heavy crust of, um, of dirt, of pollution, there is water which is a little clearer, then clearer. Then she comes to the deeper part of the waters and sees but these waters are clean, pure. And as she looks deeper even than that, she sees running through the heart of these clean waters a, a stream of brilliant, luminous water in which she recognizes the waters with Christ promised to the Samaritan woman. This is an, an image of the way in which we face one another. We face events in our lives. We face um, other people. Because every time we meet circumstances or people, we bring things to ourselves. What does it mean? How does it affect me? And therefore, we are blind and we calumniate in a way what we see because we do not see that the tiger is exactly what he should be. And these waters of Thames are what they should be, being the Thames waters, and so forth. And so there is a point at which we must learn to, um, God looks at us with this um, freedom. He looks at the created world in all nowadays with all its tragedy at us in all our sinfulness but what he sees is not this only because he has already <coughs> given his life for the world and for himself and for us he has already died to himself in the person of Christ he can now look at us without horror. And I remember Father Yevgraf Kabelevsky, one of the most remarkable priests we had in France, saying to me, when God looks at you, he does not um, fix his gaze on the virtues which you do not possess. He does not concentrate either on what is ugly in you, because he has come, become man to save you from it. What he sees is deeper than um, that his own image marked in you. He sees you as an, as an image of God. And he recognizes you as his image, despite the virtues that are not there or the ugliness which catches the eye of every one of us. But do we see this beauty? God does. And so when God creates uh, this material world, I have not yet come to speaking at all about the creation of men and men as such. What he sees is 
a world that has emerged out of a call to be loved and to respond to love, a world that is capable of responding, a world that needs divine love and divine gift of self, which is humility, the utmost, ultimate humility, and he pervades this world by his presence, as the sun bathes every object around us, or the warmth of the sun, or warmth, and feeds everything and fills it. Then we see the story of the various days of creation, and I'm not going to dwell on it, because um, it is not a... One minute, excuse me. Because it's not a matter of co comparing the, the description of the Bible with what science teaches us about evolution or Lamarckism and these things. It's not in a, the Bible does not attempt of giving us a lesson of natural history. <coughs> Moreover, there is a remarkable passage in the writings of Father uh, Sergei Bulgakov, in which he says that we must always remember, when we read the beginnings of Genesis, we must always remember that this is not history, but meta-history. In other words, this is not an adequate description of a world as it emerged out of naught, as it was before the fall. Because this world doesn't exist anymore. We do not know this world. And this world is described in the Bible in the terms of the fallen world projected into the world of before the fall. This is a very important element because when we try to read into the beginnings of Genesis uh, modern science, we do not manage to do it, not because Genesis is wrong or because modern science is wrong, but because Genesis speaks in the language of one world, of a world that is gone and is unknown to the writer. At the same time, it conveys to us things which are important for us to know. Now, I have got still 10 minutes, uh, if you can endure uh, so much, and I want to make another move. In the beginning of um, the chapter, we are told that God created heaven and earth. And the simplest way of seeing these words is uh, what I said about the earth, and then say, well, heaven we know, uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the rest. The problem is that um, it is not only this, because God created light, long before he created the luminaries of the world. And when uh, the Old Testament says that God created heavens, he doesn't speak only 
of a stratosphere. He speaks of the world which we call heaven. Came, he came down from heaven and was incarnate, we say, for instance, in the creed. What is this heaven? This heaven, according to the writings of the um, fathers of the church, is the world of angels. And I want to say a few words about it without dwelling too much on material which uh, is traditional but not scriptural. Um, the heavens of which one can speak in that context is this world of angels, of beings which God created, which are in a way material, but not possessed of the materiality which is ours, to which we will come later when we speak of the fall of men. You remember the passage in the Gospel in which Christ appears to his disciples. He enters through closed doors and he's there. He's physically there. And yet his materiality is not the heavy, condensed materiality which the apostles knew in the days when he was in their midst. In other passages, Christ appears and he's not recognized because people expect a material presence like the one they have known on earth and it's another materiality. He's not immaterial in the sense that he can be touched. He can touch. But he hasn't got the heaviness which um, the human being acquired as a result of the fall. But to that I will come separately. But what uh, why I mentioned that is not to satisfy uh, the curiosity you may not have or uh, mine, but for a very um, precise reason. The reason is this. It is only by asking ourselves questions about the angels that we can, if not answer, at least come nearer and answer concerning the appearance of evil. Because we know from the scriptures that man was tempted so that it is evil that came to meet him and beguiled him into the fall. Where did evil come? from. Because from the scripture we know that at every step God looked at what had emerged uh, under the sort of breathing, the brooding of the Holy Spirit, had emerged and it was good. So what? He created angels that were uh, endowed with the materiality that was thinner, lighter than ours, but were not immaterial. And then, from early days, the writers, both Jewish and Christian, have asked themselves, how could angels turn into devils? How could what was recognized by God as good be perverted into evil? 
And a number of answers have been given. I will give you two or three. Um, the first one is that the angels fell by pride. That is, they saw themselves so luminous, so glorious in comparison to the rest of the world that they felt themselves superior and pride led to their fall. But to be proud, pride must exist. And in a perfect being, there is no reason to find pride. Why should it come from? There is another attempt at explaining it by saying it was jealousy, looking at God and seeing so more wonderful than themselves. Why can't we be him? That is what you find in the story of Lucifer. There is even a writer who suggested, and I'm not giving names because at the moment I can't remember them, who suggests that um, the angels fell through envy when God created men in his image and likeness, they rebelled. Why aren't we uh, created in the image and likeness of God? Why about this late upstart? Uh, I'm using my language, not theirs. And that led them to fall. But again, jealousy, pride, envy must exist before you fall a prey to it. But there is one passage which uh, impressed me very much in spite of its slight obscurity in the writer of an early writer called Lactantius. He says that it's impatience that uh, destroyed them. And um, I don't remember that he develops his thought uh, very much, but I will tell you how I understand what he said in this passage. What I see is that the angels were created as uh, everything perfect in the sense of without a flaw, but capable of growing ever more perfect, more beautiful, more wonderful. And that is what they did. And according to, I think, to Lactantius, unless I add my own uh, imagination to it, a moment came when they saw themselves possessed of such incredible beauty that they felt, it's enough for me. Why should I move on from there? What I am surpasses. And there are here two temptations. The one is that to say that you must, must outgrow myself means that I must renounce what I am and take the risk of becoming different. In